Chapter Eight of Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands by Mary Seacole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. Before I left Jamaica for Navy Bay, as narrated in the last chapter, war had been declared against Russia, and we were all anxiously expecting news of a descent upon the Crimea. Now, no sooner had I heard of war somewhere than I longed to witness it and when I was told that many of the regiments I had known so well in Jamaica had left England for the scene of action, the desire to join them became stronger than ever. I used to stand for hours in silent thought before an old map of the world, in a little corner of which someone had chalked a red cross to enable me to distinguish where the Crimea was, and as I traced the route thither all difficulties would vanish. But when I came to talk over the project with my friends, the best scheme I could devise seemed so wild and improbable that I was fain to resign my hopes for a time, and so started for Navy Bay. But all the way to England, from Navy Bay, I was turning my old wish over and over in my mind, and when I found myself in London, in the autumn of 1854, just after the Battle of Alma had been fought, and my old friends were fairly before the walls of Sebastopol, how to join them there took up far more of my thoughts than that visionary gold-mining speculation on the river Palmilla, which seemed so feasible to us in New Granada, but was considered so wild and unprofitable a speculation in London. And, as time wore on, the inclination to join my old friends of the 97th, 48th, and other regiments, battling with worse foes than yellow fever or cholera, took such exclusive possession of my mind that I threw over the gold speculation altogether, and devoted all my energies to my new scheme. Heaven knows it was visionary enough. I had no friends who could help me in such a project, nay, who would understand why I desired to go, and what I desired to do when I got there. My funds, although they might, carefully husbanded, carry me over the three thousand miles and land me at Balaclava, would not support me there long while to persuade the public that an unknown Creole woman would be useful to their army before Sebastopol was too improbable an achievement to be thought of for an instant. Circumstances, however, assisted me. As the winter wore on, came hints from various quarters of mismanagement, want, and suffering in the Crimea, and after the battles of Balaclava and Inkerman, and the fearful storm of the 14th of November, the worst anticipations were realised then we knew that the hospitals were full to suffocation, that scarcity and exposure were the fate of all in the camp, and that the brave fellows, for whom any of us at home would have split our last shilling, and shared our last meal, were dying thousands of miles away from the active sympathy of their fellow-countrymen. Fast and thick upon the news of Inkerman, fought by a handful of fasting and enfeebled men, against eight times their number of picked Russians, brought fresh and animated to the contest, and while all England was reeling beneath the shock of that fearful victory, came the sad news that hundreds were dying whom the Russian shot and sword had spared, and that the hospitals of Scutari were utterly unable to shelter, or their inadequate staff to attend to, the shiploads of sick and wounded which were sent to them across the stormy Black Sea. But directly England knew the worst, she set about repairing her past neglect. In every household busy fingers were working for the poor soldier, money flowed in golden streams wherever need was, and Christian ladies, mindful of the sublime example, I was sick, and ye visited me, 
hastened to volunteer their services by those sick-beds which only women know how to soothe and bless. Need I be ashamed to confess that I shared in the general enthusiasm, and longed more than ever to carry my busy, and the reader will not hesitate to add, experienced, fingers, where the sword or bullet had been busiest, and pestilence most rife. I had seen much of sorrow and death elsewhere, but they had never daunted me, and if I could feel happy binding up the wounds of quarrelsome Americans and treacherous Spaniards, what delight should I not experience if I could be useful to my own sons, suffering for a cause it was so glorious to fight and bleed for? I never stayed to discuss probabilities, or enter into conjectures as to my chances of reaching the scene of action. I made up my mind that if the army wanted nurses they would be glad of me, and with all the ardour of my nature, whichever carried me where inclination prompted, I decided that I would go to the Crimea, and go I did as all the world knows. Of course, had it not been for my old strong-mindedness, which has nothing to do with obstinacy, and is no way related to it, the best term I can think of to express it being judicious decisiveness. I should have given up the scheme a score of times in as many days, so regularly did each successive day give birth to a fresh set of rebuffs and disappointments. I shall make no excuse to my readers for giving them a pretty full history of my struggles to become a Crimean heroine. My first idea, and knowing that I was well fitted for the work, and would be the right woman in the right place, the reader can fancy my audacity, was to apply to the War Office for the post of hospital nurse. Among the diseases which I understood were most prevalent in the Crimea were cholera, diarrhoea, and dysentery, all of them more or less known in tropical climates and with which, as the reader will remember, my Panama experience had made me tolerably familiar. Now, no one will accuse me of presumption, if I say that I thought, and so it afterwards proved, that my knowledge of these human ills would not only render my services as a nurse more valuable, but would enable me to be of use to the overworked doctors. That others thought so too, I took with me ample testimony. I cannot resist the temptation of giving my readers one of the testimonials I had, it seems so eminently practical and to the point. I became acquainted with Mrs. Seacole through the instrumentality of T. B. Cowan, Esquire, H.B.M. Consul at Colon, on the Isthmus of Panama, and have had many opportunities of witnessing her professional zeal and ability in the treatment of aggravated forms of tropical diseases. I am myself personally much indebted for her indefatigable kindness and skill, at a time when I am apt to believe the advice of a practitioner qualified in the North would have little availed. Her peculiar fitness, in a constitutional point of view, for the duties of a medical attendant, needs no comment. Signed, A. G. M., Late Medical Officer, West Granada Gold Mining Company. So I made long and unwearied application at the War Office, in blissful ignorance of the labour and time I was throwing away. I have reason to believe that I considerably interfered with the repose of sundry messengers, and disturbed, to an alarming degree, the official gravity of some nice gentlemanly young fellows, who were working out their salaries in an easy, off-hand way. But my ridiculous endeavours to gain an interview with the Secretary at War of course failed, and glad at last to oblige a distracted messenger, I transferred my attentions to the Quartermaster-General's office. Here I saw another gentleman, who listened to me with a great deal of polite enjoyment, and—his amusement ended—hinted, 
had I not better apply to the medical department? And accordingly I attached myself to their quarters, with the same unwearying ardour. But of course I grew tired at last, and then I changed my plans. Now, I am not for a single instant going to blame the authorities who would not listen to the offer of a motherly yellow woman to go to the Crimea and nurse her sons there, suffering from cholera, diarrhoea, and a host of lesser ills. In my country, where people know our use, it would have been different, but here it was natural enough, although I had references and other voices spoke for me, that they should laugh, good-naturedly enough, at my offer. War, I know, is a serious game, but sometimes very humble actors are of great use in it, and if the reader, when he comes in time to peruse the evidence of those who had to do with the Sebastopol drama, of my share in it, will turn back to this chapter, he will confess, perhaps, that, after all, the impulse which led me to the War Department was not unnatural. My new scheme was, I candidly confess, worse devised than the one which had failed. Miss Nightingale had left England for the Crimea, but other nurses were still to follow, and my new plan was simply to offer myself to Mrs. H. as a recruit. Feeling that I was one of the very women they most wanted, experienced and fond of the work, I jumped at once to the conclusion that they would gladly enrol me in their number. To go to Cox's, the army agents, who were most obliging to me, and obtain the Secretary at War's private address, did not take long, and that done I laid the same pertinacious siege to his great house in blank, square, as I had previously done to his place of business. Many a long hour did I wait in his great hall, while scores passed in and out, many of them looking curiously at me. The flunkies, noble creatures, marvelled exceedingly at the yellow woman, whom no excuses could get rid of, nor impertinence dismay, and showed me very clearly that they resented my persisting in remaining there, in mute appeal from their sovereign will. At last I gave that up, after a message from Mrs. H., that the full complement of nurses had been secured, and that my offer could not be entertained. Once again I tried, and had an interview this time with one of Miss Nightingale's companions. She gave me the same reply, and I read in her face the fact that, had there been a vacancy, I should not have been chosen to fill it. As a last resort, I applied to the managers of the Crimean Fund, to know whether they would give me a passage to the camp, once there I would trust to something turning up. But this failed also, and one cold evening I stood in the twilight, which was fast deepening into wintry night, and looked back upon the ruins of my last castle in the air. The disappointment seemed a cruel one. I was so conscious of the unselfishness of the motives which induced me to leave England, so certain of the service I could render among the sick soldiery, and yet I found it so difficult to convince others of these facts. Doubts and suspicions arose in my heart for the first and last time, thank heaven. Was it possible that American prejudices against colour had some root here? Did these ladies shrink from accepting my aid, because my blood flowed beneath a somewhat duskier skin than theirs? Tears streamed down my foolish cheeks, as I stood in the fast-thinning streets, tears of grief that any should doubt my motives, that heaven should deny me the opportunity that I sought. Then I stood still and looking upward through and through the dark clouds that shadowed London, prayed aloud for help. 
I dare say that I was a strange sight to the few passers-by who hastened homeward through the gloom and mist of that wintry night. I dare say those who read these pages will wonder at me, as much as they who saw me did. But you must all remember that I am one of an impulsive people, and find it hard to put that restraint upon my feelings, which to you is so easy and natural. The morrow, however, brought fresh hope. A good night's rest had served to strengthen my determination. Let what might happen, to the Crimea I would go. If in no other way, then would I upon my own responsibility and at my own cost. There were those there who had known me in Jamaica, who had been under my care, doctors who would vouch for my skill and willingness to aid them, and a general who had more than once helped me, and would do so still. Why not trust to their welcome and kindness, and start at once? If the authorities had allowed me, I would willingly have given them my services as a nurse. But as they declined them, should I not open a hotel for invalids in the Crimea in my own way? I had no more idea of what the Crimea was than the home authorities themselves, perhaps. But having once made up my mind, it was not long before cards were printed, and speeding across the Mediterranean, to my friends before Sebastopol. Here is one of them. British Hotel. Mrs. Mary Seacole. Late of Kingston, Jamaica. Respectfully announces to her former kind friends, and to the officers of the Army and Navy generally, that she has taken her passage in the screw-steamer Hollander, to start from London on the 25th of January, intending on her arrival at Balaclava to establish a mess-table and comfortable quarters, for sick and convalescent officers. This bold programme would reach the Crimea in the end of January, at a time when any officer would have considered a stall in an English stable luxurious quarters compared to those he possessed, and had nearly forgotten the comforts of a mess-table. It must have read to them rather like a mockery, and yet, as the reader will see, I succeeded in redeeming my pledge. While this new scheme was maturing, I again met Mr. Day in England. He was bound to Balaclava upon some shipping business, and we came to the understanding that, if it were found desirable, we should together open a store as well as a hotel in the neighbourhood of the camp. So was originated the well-known firm of Seacole and Day. I am sorry to say the camp wits dubbed it Day and Martin, which for so many months did business upon the now deserted high-road, from the then busy harbour of Balaclava, to the front of the British army before Sebastopol. These new arrangements were not allowed to interfere in any way with the main object of my journey. A great portion of my limited capital was, with the kind aid of a medical friend, invested in medicines which I had reason to believe would be useful, with the remainder I purchased those home comforts which I thought would be most difficult to obtain away from England. I had scarcely set my foot on board the Hollander, before I met a friend. The supercargo was the brother of the Mr. S., whose death in Jamaica the reader will not have forgotten, and he gave me a hearty welcome. I thought the meeting augured well, and when I told him my plans he gave me the most cheering encouragement. I was glad indeed of any support, for beyond all doubt my project was a hazardous one. So cheered at the outset, I watched without a pang the shores of England sink behind the smooth sea and turned my gaze hopefully to the as yet landless horizon, beyond which lay that little peninsula, 
to which the eyes and hearts of all England were so earnestly directed. So cheerily the good ship ploughed its way eastward ho for Turkey. End of chapter 8